Hey, what's up everybody? John Pronich, host of the 343 Podcast, and I am trying out something new. I am recording this episode, not only the audio, but I am recording video as well. So if you are just a podcast listener and you find yourself with some extra time on your hands and you're looking to watch some video, head over to the website and you can catch all of the video to accompany this Q&A that we are about to do. This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Over the last couple of weeks, a pile of questions have accumulated on a tweet that I put out there asking my Twitter followers what questions I can answer for them. And there were a lot of responses. I narrowed it down to about 25 questions that I'm going to go over right now. And hopefully you enjoy this episode of the 343 podcast. All right, so let's get into some of the questions that you guys have. Uh, there's a lot of really good questions. We'll start with, um, I think I arranged these in order, but we'll see how good of a job I did. Uh, we'll start with Andrew Crawlard and his question with, how have you changed your ideas around the consolidation phase to build out of the back with the rise of high pressing as a common tactic? Now, I'll start with this. Um, the consolidation phase, I first kind of heard, started hearing about that verbiage or that lingo when I first saw Franz Hoek speak. He came and did a, a, a clinic here locally where I'm from in San Luis Obispo. He had a great relationship with Paul Holliker and with Andrew Ziemer. So together those guys uh, brought Franz to the San Luis Obispo, California area. That's where I first got exposed to him. And that's when I first started to hear that, that idea of consolidation. And that's basically yeah, like the, the beginning stages of when you, when you have the ball most often in most of the graphics it's referring to your defensive third of the field when you're in possession of the ball so that's kind of the, the gist of that i also started to see it with a video uh produced by michael jolly now i believe he is from england i believe he has some pro coaching experience although it looks like his last stint didn't go too well um, but he used to make these really cool like little infographics and uh, videos regarding building out of the back and different phases of play and things like that. And so he used the word consolidation as well. I'll link to one of Michael Jolly's videos in the show notes of this podcast so you can go see what I'm talking about. Okay, but let's get to Andrew's question. So uh, it's an interesting question. So how have my ideas changed? Well, personally, I haven't coached a team since 2016. So it's been four years since I've been a head coach of a team. And my last job head coaching was just little was little kids. Um, but what I will say is this, I, I had uh, about 10 years of coaching experience prior to my stop, uh, my stopping of coaching. And I didn't really start to see success until I stopped changing all of my ideas about the game. And it wasn't until I actually settled on a, a certain set of ideas that I actually started to see improvements, not only in myself as a coach, but my players and my teams. What I mean by that is, is I, stopped being, I stopped allowing myself to be influenced by all kinds of outside factors, coaching education courses, um, this new hot topic, this book, this YouTube video, this drill, this all kinds of, well, all kinds of different stuff. So once I, I settled on how I wanted to play the game or how I wanted my teams to play the game, and I settled on what I believed in, uh, in the different phases of the game, that's when I really started to see improvement. Now, we did encounter high pressing teams quite a bit, but it was most often on the fly for those teams. So those teams were making those changes during a game compared to us, how we were playing was all well planned and well thought out and well rehearsed. So when it came to the game time execution for us, we tended to be much, much, much better and more fluent, uh, more fluid than the other team. So another team might try to press us on the fly. Their coach might start yelling, oh, they're building out of the back again. Press, 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 high press, high press, high press. No problem for us because our our girls or our teams were were very comfortable with building it back, and we trained with incredible high pressure in, in training and um, in practice sessions. So to see or to encounter high press in a game wasn't that big of a deal for us. Now I will say, high pressing probably is is more common now 
what I don't think is common is the rehearsal and, and the proper execution of high pressing. So I, st I still think a lot of teams, from my experience watching other coaches train their teams in recent years, from my experience going to watch games still, from my experience refereeing games, I've been in the middle and on the sideline of hundreds, if not thousands of games in the last four to five years. And uh, yeah, the, the high pressing still looks very unorganized to me and unrehearsed and impromptu. So um, again, I guess to answer the question straight up is I don't let things like that influence me. Uh, my teams know how they want to play. We train how we want to play. And then we go out there and we execute based on, on how we want to play. So that's kind of my answer. I don't know if that gets to your what you were expecting out of it, but nonetheless, that's my answer. All right, question number two. This is a quick one. Uh, this is from my buddy Tyler. He asked, how can I try out for the U.S. men's national team? You can't. You can't. Uh, maybe they have a sign-up sheet on their website, though. You can go find. Maybe go dig into that. All right, moving on to question number three. It is by an anonymous account, uh, Mix Discarude's hair, and I'll say this, I'm gonna answer questions from anonymous accounts in this episode of the podcast. I will not in future episodes of the podcast. I think anonymous accounts uh, hurt the discussion more often than not. I don't want to um, encourage people to be anonymous. Uh, I don't want to uh, play nice with those accounts. There's no there's no real reason to. Uh, so that's my, my disclaimer. For that, I will answer some of the questions from anonymous accounts today, but not in the future. So just keep that in the back of your mind if you're wanting to participate. Uh, so the question was, realistically, in a nationwide in a nationwide open pyramid soccer ecosystem, what are the barriers to entry at the lowest tier? For example, to get into the eighth tier, uh, uh, I don't know, we had eight tiers here, um, but Houston FA, um, you have to pay $1,800 registration fee. Uh, would would it be something similar? I guess is, is the question. I'm not exactly sure what you're what you're trying to get out of this. Um, the barrier to entry at the bottom is one of the. Um, it, it's it's almost a non-problem. There's so many teams at the very bottom of, of the American soccer pyramid right now that have no problem. Uh, getting getting things started the way that they run them now currently, uh, meaning you know there's plenty of men's leagues, there's plenty of women's leagues, there's plenty of kids leagues out there. So the barrier to entry there is not really the problem that needs to be addressed in my opinion. The problem that needs to be addressed are the ceilings that are on top of all those different divisions. Uh, we basically have a caste system system, um, meaning whatever whatever place you're in. That's where you go. So if you have the, the fortunate ability to pay $1,800 and start a men's league team, that's awesome. Uh, but you're going to be a men's league team forever. Uh, if you have the the opportunity to start a USL team, uh, whatever their second or third division is in their own system, which is, I think, fourth tier now in the, the entire system. So if you can start a fourth division American soccer team, cool. But that's not the problem getting into that. The problem is uh, what next? Uh, there, there's no ability for you to move. There's no, there's no, there's nothing. Uh, and I think that's the bigger problem that needs to be addressed. Um, when you start talking about barriers to entry, uh, uh, it becomes an issue when you start talking about third division, second division, and then especially first division. So the barrier to entry to get into the first division in American soccer at the moment is hundreds of millions of dollars. That's the issue. It's the only way to get into the first division in American soccer is to pay that hundreds of millions of dollars. And that is the barrier to entry that we need to break down. Uh, we need to break through that caste system, I guess. Um, the people that are kind of the best resources, I think, in, in that realm, uh, there's, there's two people, one in particular, but Dennis Crowley and Ricardo Silva did a great job of bringing their argument to the Court of Arbitration for Sport and to argue that uh, American soccer does indeed have a caste system and the way that the soccer is arranged here is not in um, not in line with how FIFA FIFA's bylaws are written. So they tried to challenge that in court, which I thought was very uh, very noble deal. Uh, they failed, 
but in the process, they also released a lot of information regarding their argument regarding how they see American soccer and the problems, how they see it and, and, and different things. So those became great re resources for all of us to go and use now. So I highly encourage people to go check that stuff out. And then taking that one step further to maybe be direct with your question, what are some of the barriers to entry at the lowest level? Well, Dennis Crowley happens to be an authority in that space as well. So he started a, a club from nothing, Stockade FC in Kingston, New York. And he has been very transparent about the process of starting a, a, a lower division soccer club, what it takes to run it, the day-to-day -day operations and expenses and the staff, uh, picking players, tryouts, building uh, relationships with the community, printing stickers, all kinds of stuff. So if you're looking for like an actual playbook of how to start a, a lower division soccer team, that's probably your best resource available. And I will link to that in the show notes of this podcast. So you can go visit Dennis's blog posts, multiple blog posts regarding uh, his work with Stockade and also how he has fought against U.S. soccer um, in, the, in the recent years. So, yeah, hope that answers your question. Mix Discarude's hair. Hopefully you can come back with a real name next time. All right, next question. Uh, another anonymous account, so hopefully we can, we can start changing this. Uh, it comes from O-Town o -Town Voice. Uh, how many clubs are continuing to pay coaches during this off time? Will this disruption cause clubs to fold? Will any of these changes impact leagues? Great questions. Um, I imagine each club is handling it differently. Um, in my area, I know there's a couple different youth clubs here. One of them is almost exclusively volunteer coaches, so I don't think that they're going to encounter many, many problems. Like another club locally probably will because they hire mostly college and ex-college players, young, young players, to be their coaches and they pay those coaches and that's how they make their living. So I imagine those two clubs are handling things very, very differently. I don't know how they're handling them. I'm not involved directly with a club at this moment. I will retweet your question and see if some coaches and administrators can chime in and give you an answer for how things are being handled in their neck of the woods. So that is uh, something that, that I will do when I'm done recording this. So hopefully you can get an answer from other people that are actually on the front lines there. Uh, to answer one of your other questions, will it have any impact on leagues? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think the, the league structures uh, are going to change at all from something like this. Who knows? Uh, I think everything, everything is almost unknown at this point. We can just assume things are going to go back to normal. I don't know if they will. But as far as league structures go, I don't see too much happening in that regard. So we'll see. But thank you for your question nonetheless. Let's see if we can get your real name attached to that next time. All right, next question. Question number five. Uh, this comes from Dylan. Dylan asks, how fortunate do you think U.S. soccer has been with the timing of the Cordero news and the Players Council debacle and the COVID pandemic? It seems it has taken a lot of focus away from this current situation. I feel like it should be a bigger deal given what's at stake. Well, Dylan... First off, great question. Thank you for contributing. And I do think that U.S. soccer and MLS and NWSL and a lot of other people are very fortunate that this is happening uh, while the U.S. women's national team was gaining some steam with their lawsuits, while uh, the transition happened from Carlos to uh, Cindy Cohn or Cindy Parlo Cohn, uh, while the new CEO of U.S. Soccer was announced. I think that, yeah, I, I do agree to an extent that U.S. Soccer is fortunate and that all the other entities are, are fortunate as well because it kind of gets brushed under the rug. And I also think that this isn't the first time that's happened. I, I remember thinking multiple times, like, wow, like these guys are lucky that, you know, all this other news is happening, be it the uh, presidential... Uh, campaign and election that happened in 2015 and 2016. I think there was some bigger news that happened then. There were some other just big world events that happened, you know, in 2017, 18, and 19 that just seemed to kind of coincide or, or or kind of took over the news cycle when I think some issues in U.S. soccer could have taken precedent. But on on that note, I have said before that I think a lot of the people that operate 
within U.S. soccer governance or operate in board member positions, at, whether it's clubs or state organizations or, or things like that. I think a lot of people hide in soccer because that's where they can find power. I, I look at that from um, a local standpoint as well. Like when I was on the board of directors for a local recreational soccer league, um, I was constantly questioning the motivations behind people being there. I had no idea why non-soccer people wanted to be on the board. A lot of times I, I kind of settled in my own mind that it was because they wanted some type of a power. Like they, they couldn't get it at work or they couldn't get it at home or they couldn't uh, get it wherever. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of how I feel about that. So uh, Dylan, to answer your question, do I think they're fortunate? Absolutely. Sorry for the rant. Okay, moving on. Question number six comes from Isaac. And Isaac asks, what are your thoughts on the different youth leagues in California? So Cal South, NPL, DA Academies. I've had some discussions with a few coaches in what is best and the lack of accessibility for DAs to get the best players in California. Uh, it's an interesting question. It's a good question. It's a question that a lot of people, especially in California, are, are, are facing you know, every time the season changes here. There's a ton of leagues that operate here. The Development Academy, ECNL, SCDSL, CSL. Uh, I'm missing probably five or six big ones just in Southern California alone. And so that's from probably Paso Robles to San Diego, which is only about half the state of California and only coastal. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a ton of different things to kind of unpack in that question. What I, what I will say is a lot of times for most players, I'm not saying this to be mean or rude. I'm just trying to be real, I guess. The league doesn't matter for a lot of players. A lot of players are in it and a lot of families are in it for recreational purposes, meaning they are, um, looking to just have an activity for the kids to do while they're in between the ages of 10 and 18, uh, which is totally fine. It's absolutely fine. Uh, I'm not trying to discourage anybody from participating in recreational soccer or even club soccer if that's, if that's the objective, um, but it's just important to think realistically about it. Now, if your player is a player that wants to take it seriously and your player has legit potential, then it, yeah, it is important what league they play in. For boys, I think if your player, again, wants to take it seriously, it has shown that he wants to take it seriously, um, it's important for your player to be in the development academy given the current structure of everything. Obviously, that's not ideal, right? Because I don't, I don't agree with the way the system is set up currently. But given the circumstances, yeah, it's probably important for boys to be playing in the development academy. And if you have the luxury of being near an MLS academy and they're taking it seriously, you should probably do whatever you can to get on, on that roster as well. On the girls' side, I, I don't know much about how the Girls Development Academy uh, is, is being run other than the kind of the headlines that I see that a lot of teams are leaving. So I, don't, I can't speak author, uh, with, with authority on that topic. I do think that ECNL is probably a better spot for girls to be right now, given that college soccer seems to still be the route that most female players are going now. So they're going from playing club soccer in their teens to being on college rosters and then progressing from there. Yet the leagues to me, a lot of times pick pick whatever your closest one is, the easiest one, the most affordable for your family, the most uh, beneficial for your player. But if you, are, uh, if you are looking for something serious for a player, then yeah, I think, uh, I think DA or ECNL, boys and girls respectively, uh, it's probably still the route to go. All right, we got another question here uh, from another anonymous account. So just a reminder, not gonna be doing those in the future. Um, for this reason, actually, um, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with the question. I remember when I first saw it come in, I wasn't a big fan of it. Anyways, Conserve D. Wall is the person's name. And the question is, why are the best technical players being developed in North Texas, FC Dallas, for example, and Philadelphia, like the Union? I thought California was a hotbed, but those two areas have produced Pomacall, Pepe, Aronson recently, and those are the standouts. Plus, those teams are playing their youth. Thoughts? Lots of thoughts. I have lots of thoughts. Uh, the first thought is it's a loaded question, so you're, you're throwing in some of the bias 
uh, some of your bias, I think, and um, projecting that through through your question, because I don't necessarily agree that the most technical players are coming out of uh, North Texas or Philadelphia. Uh, yeah, just that's that's the first thing that came to my mind. I think that I that FC Dallas and Philadelphia, yeah, they they are doing a good job of promoting some of their younger players and pushing some of their younger players through their ranks. I think that's very very good. I don't know enough about the players that they're pushing through to know if those players are actually developed at those clubs or not. So I'd have to do my research on on that. Um, What FC Dallas and Philadelphia both have is the luxury and the ability to do that though. So a lot of other clubs or teams in the United States don't have the ability to progress their most technical players to first teams like FC Dallas and like Philadelphia do. For example, in San Luis Obispo, we have 10 clubs locally, none of them with first teams. And there are plenty of technical gifted players here, but we are 200 miles from the nearest professional team. So who's to say that the the most technical players aren't being developed here in San Luis Obispo? There's not being seen. And you can say that for a number of different areas around the country. So I hope you understand what I'm getting out there is that uh, I, I don't necessarily think that the most talented players are coming out of North Texas or Philadelphia. I think that those players or those, those teams have the luxury to produce those players in a different way than a lot of areas in the country. On that note, I, I don't think that players like Aronson or Pomacall or even Pepe to, to a certain extent are the most technical players. Uh, in their in their class so yeah there's that too uh there's plenty of guys from california that i think are much better much 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 better so yep i'll leave that one there uh moving on to the next question this comes from sunny jim don't know if that's an anonymous name or if that's your actual name or just a super happy jim i don't know we'll see um what can you do when you are raising kids or players in a soccer culture wasteland? No pickup games for 50 miles. And Chris Kerr actually jumped on that question and, and said, this is something similar to what I wanted to ask. Uh, pickup breeds creativity, competitiveness, and a chip on your shoulder to get better. I feel like it's a fundamental reason we aren't producing talent at a faster rate. Uh, Jim and Chris, I agree. Pickup is is important. There's no right or wrong answer, I think, in, in, in this case, other than you have to find a way to do it. Whether you know it's getting the kids in your neighborhood, if, if you live uh, outside of town, and it's just, it's just you and your kid playing one-on-one somehow, playing with a wall, whatever, you have to find a way to do it. There, there's no right or wrong answer there. Uh, drop your kid off at the park, go with your kid to the park, um, go ask people to find, to find games, organize games amongst uh, your neighborhood. There's a number of different ways. Uh, the only thing that, that would be the wrong answer there, I guess, is not doing something at all. And, and any type of right answer, I think, would be just, just going to try something. Try, try a bunch of different things and see what works. Um, I, I find it hard to believe you can't find a group of people within 50 miles that want to play pickup soccer. Number nine. This comes from Southern Gentleman, another anonymous account that asks a lot of questions on Twitter. And I have some, some things I'll address to him later as well. But who is in your 11, regardless of health and why? So he's asking, what is my starting 11 for the U.S. men's national team, regardless of health? Because we seem to have a lot of players injured all the time. And why? I'm going to tell you straight up, I hate these questions. Because it doesn't matter what I say or what anybody says. A lot of times the people that are asking these questions are only looking to inject their thoughts so here's actually, I'll, I'll just address this now because I, I had it later on down the list. What I would prefer to see somebody like Southern Gentleman do, number one, is not be anonymous. And number two, you state your 11 and ask other people for feedback. If you're so interested in these types of things, you do that. I think a lot of times people don't care uh, for the reasons behind a lot of the answers. If I projected that a player should play at a certain position at a certain time on a certain team, whatever, doesn't matter. They have their minds made up already. So it's not helping anybody, right? Um, yeah, that's how I feel about that. Southern gentlemen. Uh, let's see your starting 11. 
put it out on Twitter. Next question, Anthony, I have a seven-year-old daughter who loves the game. What do you think is the best way for her to improve? Her dribbling is okay, but she can't kick very hard. Thank you in advance. Uh, Anthony, great question. I have a very simple answer for you. Uh, she needs to get on a wall. So get a ball, find a wall at your house, at the park, a racquetball court, wherever, and hours and hours and hours with the right foot, with the left foot, with the laces, with the inside, with the outside, different spins, different ways to control it, all kinds of different things, different amounts of power uh, in the kick, different types of strokes, all kinds of things. If your player is dedicated and wants to get better, the wall isn't gonna feel like homework to them. It's gonna feel fun. Uh, if your player's not that dedicated and doesn't have the mindset of wanting to improve, it's gonna feel like a lot of work, uh, but you'll probably learn a lot about your player. Uh, in, in that sense. So uh, the wall is the absolute best tool for technical development. And we've talked about that a lot on 343's uh, blog. We've talked about it in podcasts. If you're looking for uh, plans on how to build a wall, there's a guy named James on Twitter. I'll link to his account. He has free plans for how to build a little kick wall is what he calls them. It's a great little tool. Uh, but you don't need to build a wall. There's there's plenty of walls around if you want to just go find one. But the wall is the absolute best way uh, for your player to especially work on uh, getting that, that kick harder, like you said. Okay, next question comes from Alex. Uh, any coaches you recommend learning from in the Los Angeles area? Uh, good question, Alex. Thank you for, for asking. And it kind of just depends if you're a coach that is looking to go observe sessions. Uh, again, I would recommend going to watch Joey Cassio. What Joey did is something similar to what I did when we were both developing as, as coaches is we actually would go out and watch Brian Clyburn's training sessions. And so Brian Clyburn would, would be very open and welcoming and transparent with, with his training sessions. And Joey and I would get to, you know, sit on the sidelines. You can see Joey in a lot of the 343 coaching videos, walking around, taking notes, helping out with training sessions, whatnot. So if you're a coach that's actually really interested in learning, uh, you know, doing something like that is very beneficial. Outside of that, I, I would say, you know, just finding people that have been in the game for quite a while, going and watching their sessions, um, going to college coaches sessions, everything like that, going to, to, to sneak in at uh, professional training sessions, whether it's at um, Dignity Health Park or, or uh, wherever LAFC trains on Cal State LA's campus, I think. Um, yeah, going to watch as many training sessions as possible. Not necessarily because you think the coach is good, which you might, um, but just watching training sessions, watching players, taking notes, just being in that environment, especially a professional type environment, like college or professional, um, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to learn a lot. Um, yeah. So I, I would say just, just go out there and watch sessions, watch sessions, watch sessions. Uh, number 12, the 21st century model, another anonymous account asks, do you support the 21st century model? for Division One men's college soccer? Well, it's kind of, again, a loaded question because the account is asking about what the account is pushing. So, um, is that 21st century model a positive change for college soccer? Probably, you know, the, the guys, uh, you limited it to just Division One's men's soccer. It should be, in my opinion, if it gets implemented, it can't just be for Division One men's. It has to be for Division Two, Three, and NAIA, and all the other colleges or college levels. And shouldn't be just for men. It should be for women too. So if you're changing things, you got to change all of them. Is it a positive change for college soccer? Yeah, probably. You know, for them to be playing more often, that's never a bad thing. Um, but changing the length of college soccer doesn't change any of the problems that we face in American soccer, if we're being realistic. College soccer would still be a problem. College soccer would still be um, uh, not an ideal destination for our top-level players, be it girls or boys. And American soccer suffers from many, many, many other crippling problems uh, outside of the short NCAA season. So um, I understand the appeal to the change, but I don't think it's a true uh, fix to any of American soccer's problems. And that's really where I'm most concerned. So I appreciate the question, um, but moving on. 
James Breslin asked if you could write a mission statement for uh, or club principles for a new or existing club, what would they be? He says that uh, he's in the process of helping write them for a new club and we want to get it correct. We want to focus on development and hope to avoid the ruts other clubs have fallen into. Um, difficult question. Mission statements a lot of times are, I don't know, nice words. <laughs> a lot of times you go to a club's website and you see their mission statement and, and it's just it's just words, man. Um, principles, like you mentioned, are, are more important. And getting the buy-in from coaches at all levels from top to bottom is probably the hardest thing that you're going to experience in, in getting this new club off the ground. But because it is a new club, you have the opportunity to start fresh and to start right. Um, so getting those things, getting those things correct from the start, I do believe is very, very important. Uh, I think if I remember correctly, I responded to you on Twitter saying that I once wrote uh, like a whole, like a whole packet basically on how I wanted my teams to play and what my my mission statement, my principles, my philosophy, my style of play, everything I included everything in that. Um, and I have not dug that up yet, so I will uh, I will get to that soon, and I will share that with you. Uh, moving on to the next question, uh, Jeff Graffio asks, how much of a factor does overall team quality affect individual player development? This is a very interesting question, Jeff. I'm not going to um, spend a lot of time answering it because there's an entire blog post that we have on 343coaching.com uh, about it, but the answer is kind of twofold. Uh, it matters a lot and it also just matters a little bit depending on, on the level of the player. Um, there are things that you can and you should be doing as a coach to help push your top level players. And if you are concerned about player development, you should be concerned with developing your top level players and not holding your top level players back by catering to the players that are lower on your roster. So in an extreme example, the best thing for your top level player on your roster might be releasing them and letting them go to a better environment instead of holding on to them. Now, that's an extreme example, right? But that would be the right thing to do in that case. Something to think about. If you have a group of players, maybe four to five players on your roster, and then another another 10 uh, that are kind of the same level, so five and 10, and your five are the best ones on the team, a lot of people want to cater to that 10, right? Because they think that that's where the majority is. But what happens to your five then? They get they get brought down to the level just because the, the rest of them can't keep up. Um, I'm thinking about that differently. I'm thinking that I want to cater everything to the five and make everybody else raise their level, or at least attempt to raise their level. Um, a good example of this uh, would be, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, would be Adam Finney that works at Mariposa High School in Mariposa, California. Mariposa is a very, very small town, 1,500 people maybe in a geographic location that is completely isolated from, from the rest of, of the communities, uh, soccer playing communities. Adam has three, maybe four players that have legit soccer skills. The rest of them, it's a mixed bag. There's, there's everything from uh, players that you know played a couple seasons in rec to I think last year he had a player that had never kicked the ball before coming out to, to tryouts. Adam caters to that top level and those three to four players at, at the top of his roster get, uh, you know, the sessions are designed pretty much around them and, and what they're capable of and everybody else is asked to raise their level to, to, to theirs, which I think is, is very good. Adam's been very successful with that. Uh, his teams finish first or second place in a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of years. They've, made really good playoff runs in, in the high school playoffs and the the team is a great group of girls they they all support each other they all help each other they all laugh they all cry together everything it's you know it's, it's really special to see what they've built there but I think you know Adam would be a great resource if you want to reach out and, and see 
or hear from him because he's actually in the midst of it all the time. So, uh, but like I said, I'm, uh, I'm going to post a link in the show notes to uh, an article that Gary Kleiman wrote regarding, um, you know, soccer player development philosophy and how to uh, group or categorize or stratify those, those players on your roster into, you know, group one, two, three, which one you cater to, why, the results, all kinds of stuff. It's a very, very interesting article and, and I'm excited to share that with you, Jeff. Robert asks, what should a player do if he wants to play a lot? but does not want to pay travel team fees or isn't going to make the cut? Uh, should he play on two rec teams? Should he do this or that? Uh, kind of piggybacking off the answer I gave earlier, uh, it depends on the long-term goals of the player. Uh, if the player wants to you know, pursue soccer's legitimate you know, career goal, you know, if they want to play professionally, they need to be in a professional environment as soon as possible. As soon as that goal is realized, that's when they need to get there. Uh, if, the, if the kid has legit potential, that's where the kid needs to be. If the kid just genuinely just loves the game and just playing for fun yeah no problem play pickup soccer play rec soccer play as close to home as possible play in the schoolyard play with the wall play all kinds of different things play in the backyard get on social media start a start an account there where you can meet and interact with people across the world uh yeah if, if that's the that's the type of environment that, that they're looking for i think there's plenty of opportunities for for that um, but i think spending some time and and realizing you know what the kid really wants and being realistic about the potential of accomplishing that uh, given your family circumstances given the, the kid's talent uh, everything that's involved in, in that uh, but, but being realistic about it I think is very very important for a lot of families to, to sit and think about so yeah next question Scott uh, how big of an impact do you feel lower division sides doing well in the Open Cup would have in trying to push the argument for promotion and relegation? Uh, great question, Scott. Uh, it reminds me of Cal FC and the run that they had a few years back when Eric Winalda was coaching them. They were basically a men's league team that knocked out an MLS team and then went to overtime with another MLS team, Seattle Sounders, in like back-to-back -back weeks. And you saw at the end of that, that stint uh, that that second period in, in overtime, the guys were just gassed. I mean, they were men's league players playing against you know, these guys that are training as full-time professionals. It's completely lopsided, right? At the time, that made that made some people turn their heads and, and whatnot. But that competition, that entire competition, is so lopsided that that Cal FC story is uh, probably similar to the Leicester. Uh, Leicester City FC story when they won the Premier League like it's one in five billion or whatever that that thing is uh, the odds were for that so um, I don't I don't think that that's where we should put all of our uh, our energy in hoping that an Open Cup team makes a run because I think that's going to be incredibly rare I don't think we'll see anything to that extent uh, for a very long time where that fight needs to take place if we want if we really want to see promotion relegation gain some traction that fight isn't on the field uh it's in the boardroom yeah so the, the changing the decisions or the minds of people in the boardroom is where where we need to be fighting um when i say we uh i mean a, a member of the board needs to be in there fighting on behalf of fans and coaches and players and investors and parents and players because that's really uh that's who's going to benefit from promotion relegation is all the people that are outside of that that mls bubble right now so uh getting somebody to fight for us in the boardroom is very important until that person is fighting for us as fans that you know that want it as investors that want it as players and coaches and parents and whatever that want to see something like promotion relegation. I think right now we're kind of still in number one, an education phase. I myself, I'm still learning about the ins and outs of promotion relegation, what it actually entails, what it takes, the benefits, the, the, the pros, the cons, everything. I'm still learning. Uh, I think a lot of people need to spend and invest a lot of time in learning. The, the real thing that we can do is, is to put pressure on those people that are in the boardrooms and put pressure on, on the outlets that, uh, like the media outlets, American soccer writers, to cover things like this. I think that's important. That's where that fight should really be taking place. I think if we're if we're hoping for an open cup run, we might be disappointed. All right, uh, question number twenty. This one's 
easy. I'm going to breeze right through this. Um, Arge asked, uh, do you think Olympic qualifying in the Olympics will take place this year? Nope. They're canceled. They're moved to 2021, so we can skip past that. Uh, will the player pool for the US 23s uh, be affected if it's postponed? I haven't seen anything about them changing the, the the restrictions on who can and can't be involved. I don't know if they'll make it like a U24 tournament or something like that. I, I haven't seen anything about that. But I do think that the roster will get a significant shakedown because the players that were chosen right now, they were selected based on their current form, the current situations of their clubs, a number of different things. And that all changes, uh, especially with the way things are now. But uh, who knows where things are going to be a year from now. So, yeah, that whole roster is going to get a shakedown. You asked me to name my, my 23 players that I think absolutely must be in the Olympic team. Again, that'll change next year. Uh, who's in form, who, who comes on the scene, who falls off. There's a number of different things. So, uh, And then to piggyback off of what I said earlier to Southern Gentlemen, I don't enjoy doing things like roster predictions. It's not my wheelhouse. Um, a lot of times it starts arguments uh, on, on social media just because people are looking to inject their thoughts. Um, I'm not saying that's what you're trying to do, uh, but that's just my my stance on that. You also asked who are my three overage players that I would take uh, if we actually made the Olympics. Again, that changes now. Uh, who's informed next year? You know, who knows? You know, it's a, the older guys they're going to be a year older. You know, maybe if we were selecting a 29 year old this year, uh, players 30 next year. Are they still in the wheelhouse? I don't know. So. Um, I will say this, none of the of the older players on the U.S. men's national team excite me in pretty much any way. So I'm not, not too stoked on, on any of those players right now. I, I would almost say give the keys to all the young kids and let them run with it. That's kind of how I feel. I hope we make it. Um, there's another question. Maybe I'll skip to that one now from Southern Gentleman again. So this is the question I actually was going to answer from him. Uh, how far could the first choice U23 team go in the Olympics? Uh, here, here's the interesting thing about the Olympics, Confederations Cup, uh, Gold Cup, World Cup, Euro Cup, but these summer type tournaments that we have as nations are crapshoots. You know, if, if somebody is in good form, uh, gets some good breaks, uh, has a deep roster, all kinds of different things factor in, into that. But, you know, Croatia is a, is a very good example. Got to the final of the World Cup by only winning, I think, three games uh, compared to some of the other teams that won maybe more games in the tournament but didn't have quite the break uh, at the you know at the time that they departed the tournament. So there's things like that to consider. Uh, can the U.S. make a run just based on the talent that we have? Absolutely. Um, you know, if the, if the right roster is chosen, if the right players are chosen, if the right players are played, if the players that I think uh, should be on the team and they were they were placed together on the field in their appropriate positions, I think the U.S. can make an incredible run in the Olympics. So hopefully we get something like that. Steven asks... How can a club best align from top to bottom with a clear vision when many coaches have different philosophies? So this is something that I kind of touched on when answering another question. Uh, I believe it was the question asking how to write a mission statement or uh, writing the club's principles for a brand new club. Now that's, a, that's starting from a clean slate, right? On the other hand, what I think Steven is asking is how can a club that already exists, that already has all these moving parts, get everybody to align. It's very, very difficult. Something that I've, I've tried as a, as a coach and a director um, at a local club here. Uh, it's very, very difficult to get people to buy in. There's a lot of egos. There's a lot of history. The best way to do it you have to play politics. <laughs> uh, I'm actually looking at a book that I feel like is very important for people to read if you want to learn how to do something like that. Uh, I have my camera stacked on a bunch, or uh, propped up on a, on a stack of books. So the book is called The 48 Laws of Power. It's written by Robert Greene. And it kind of walks you through how to 
uh, gain power, gain influence, gain uh, street cred, um, and be able to get the things that you want. Yeah, using to read the book. Robert Greene's a fantastic author, by the way. 48 Laws of Power is a great book. His book Mastery is also very awesome. He wrote a book about seduction, very similar to the 48 Laws of Power, how, how you can, the, the art of seduction, how you can seduce people into doing what you want them to do. I think it's very, very interesting read. Um, I listened to most of his books on Audible before I purchased the hard copies, because then I went back in the hard copies and I highlighted all the lessons I thought were important. Um, but to, to get everybody aligned, it's gonna be a, a political battle and you need to plan. You need to plan your different steps. You need to plan for what if things go right, what if things go wrong, uh, how you can get people on your side, how you can convince people. The art of doing that is very important. So I would, yeah, I recommend, again, having a resource, somebody like Robert Greene or, or maybe you know somebody different. But uh, I think you would learn a lot about, about doing that. I wish I had a better answer for you, Stephen, because uh, I don't think I'm answering it the way that, that you wrote it. But uh, I'd be happy to, to follow up with you individually. Uh, you asked one other question, too. Uh, so Stephen asked, what are your thoughts on players playing multiple positions at a young age? Yeah, again, it's all relative to your roster, to your goals, to all kinds of different stuff, right? The expectations of the parents. I mean, if the parents are paying 1000 bucks a, a year, um, I, don't, I don't know if they want a coach that's, you know, just playing merry-go-round with, uh, with the rosters, having everybody play every position, right? Because if they're paying a high dollar amount, they probably want to see some results right um with that said uh at the younger ages i think it's fine uh to to play players at different positions to help them learn as long as that's the intent behind it i wouldn't start switching players around just for the hell of it i would i would do it intentionally or have intention behind it te teaching them the the reasons behind all these different switches and, and the positions and, and everything with the uh, idea that Hey, this is going to help you at your position, left winger. Uh, if you know what the left back is is always doing, something like that. So I don't think that that's detrimental, but be realistic about it and don't don't just be doing it for fun. Or you know, if you're if you're winning ten zero, you start throwing your goalie at forward or whatever. That's fun. That's Rex soccer stuff. If that's if that's what you want to do, cool. Let's see, Owen asked about the best independent clear description of how USSF is structured and how it operates and who decides what, who's on the board, who votes, and all that stuff. Uh, it seems like someone somewhere could actually have like an organizational uh, chart with descriptions so that the public can learn it. Uh, you would assume so, right? You would think that would be on something like on US Soccer's website or, or something like that. It's not. You would hope so. It's not clear. It's very hard to get information out of U.S. soccer in regards to these types of things. It shouldn't be that way. The two best resources I've come across and that uh, I've I've been lucky enough to become friends with over the years uh, are Daniel Workman and Chris Kessel. They've done a remarkable job of researching, getting in the trenches, and finding all of the the appropriate information and disseminating that to the people. And the people being people like me and you, uh, they both run uh, remarkable websites that, that distribute the information. Chris has a, a phenomenal blog where he, he writes about a number of different topics related to American soccer. Daniel has his daily morning podcast that he puts out. Uh, Daniel had the fortunate experience of working behind the scenes with Eric Winalda when Winalda ran for U.S. soccer president. So Daniel got a you know. A crash course in American soccer politics through that and he shares a lot about his experience uh, working with Eric working with other uh, campaigns who did what who did who did what for who um, yeah and who was involved in, in all of that so those two guys I think are, are your best resources and they both do put out graphics blog posts podcasts all kinds of different stuff uh, related to that topic so uh, Daniel Workman Chris Kessel a link to them in the show notes all right, that'll do it for this episode of the 343 Podcast. I hope that you guys enjoyed this new style, this Q&A style. I don't plan to do this a ton. I do hope to do it again in the future. I would love your feedback on how you think the episode went, what you would like to see more of that will help me in the future to produce a more precise podcast to make sure that we are getting the answers that you want and that you need 
when you guys have questions. So if you want to reach out to me on social media, my handle is at that Croatian guy. You can follow me on Twitter or just engage with me on Twitter. That's a great spot to have a conversation with me. And if you are looking for more information about 343, all of our programs, all of our podcasts, all of our blog posts are available on 343coaching.com. Once again, that is 343coaching.com. All right. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the podcast, and we will catch you guys next time here at 343. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 podcast. If you are interested in accelerating your development as a coach and learning more about possession-based soccer, you can visit 343coaching.com and sign up for our premium coaching membership program. That is where you will get access to video, audio, and ebook lessons that will help you reduce your trial and error time by showing you the methods that have been proven to work in the American soccer environment. You can visit 343coaching.com to learn more about our coaching programs. Once again, that is 343coaching.com. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast, and we will catch you next time.